understand there's a Q&A to help promote indie creators today And that's what we have to say And that's what we have to say And we are live. Hello, live. How are you doing today, Ian? I am good, I'm good. It's, it has been an interesting and long day, and I have talked about art, uh, art for about half of it, and I'm ready to carry on chatting about it. <laughs> well, well, let's, let's start, start with the easy things. things. For, for example, example, what's your daily routine look like? <laughs> Well, when I'm not doing my my uh, day job, I uh, I tend to schedule things as a Monday to Friday thing. So, I, I I'm a morning person. I'm one of those terrible people who spring out of bed and I'm like, let's let's hit the day head on. But don't talk to me after about two p.m. because I'll generally be like, leave me alone now. I'm done. <laughs> um, um, I, I think, think that's pretty, pretty much everybody, everybody these days. <laughs> But yeah, then I tend to wake up, check messages, um, both personal to begin with, with a hot cup of coffee, and then uh, later more uh, client-driven ones. And right. then if I've got nothing for the day, I then tend to delve into my list of private personal art things to do. So anytime I get an idea, I make a note of it somewhere, and then at some point when I'm like, I need to be drawing, I have no client work, I just jump into that. Um, but yeah, that's that's usually how the day starts, like a very kind of almost business Ian with, with messaging and scheduling and it all sounds official and then I just go away and draw pictures. <laughs> so speaking of that though, what inspires you to do the artwork that you do? There is one definite big thing is people, like, um... People around me will. I'll just be talking about all sorts of things. Like um, uh, I work my day job as uh, I work in a kitchen, so we'll be talking about various kitchen things. And I do a lot of food puns when I'm drawing my own personal work, and that is my day job. Seeking uh, sip, uh, uh, going into my uh, evening work, shall we say, where I get a random idea for a piece of art based on food, and then go and draw it. I think a recent one was. I did a Halloween where I took uh, the cake Battenberg and turned it into a vampire Battenberg. <laughs> that sort of... Sorry? And what would you say led you to that and just food in general or...? <laughs> well, it, it, it's talking to people, like someone will say something and I guess it's the way my mind processes things. I'll, I'll hear a word and... Instead of a brain going, that word means this. My brain goes, that word sounds like this other word. And that links into this. And it's like, I could draw that. <laughs> I have the ability. So, yeah, people people definitely inspire me. People definitely come along and, and say stuff. And I start to think about it differently. Make a note somewhere. Like, at work, I'll, I'll usually have my phone with me and make a note on that. Um, I usually have something like a sketchbook or notepad with me when it's day-to-day -day life and when people say stuff you'll see a sketchpad come out suddenly that usually means i've had some sort of idea 
Um, but then when it's not, I generally, I, I try to be sort of open to things just that I enjoy drawing. So a big inspiration is um, uh, TTRPG, t- tabletop games, you know, famously like D&D, but lots of other different games that I play. And playing games with people, again, that's inspirational, but just um, the wonderful world that is like fantasy art and sci-fi art and steampunk art... I just, I, I love to be a part of that. So I tend to try and give back to the community like um, by, you know, doing essentially what you could say is fan art of, of the, the mythological creatures and the weird things that appear in all of these monster manuals and stuff like that. Um, and then again, I've, I've got a silly personality, so I tend to um, try to make light of things. So I recently, last year, completed a nine nine piece project where i drew nine monsters from um dungeons and dragons but gave them a very cute and adorable twist um and that included like uh there's there's a dnd monster called the purple worm what's well, a huge vicious creature and i made it adorable and and cute and big-eyed and uh, and the other thing is to again make light of of things like um uh, one of my favourite creatures is Mimics, because I always joke, everything is Mimics. And it's a creature that disguises itself, I think, famously as a treasure chest. And adventurers walk in and go, ooh, treasure! And it's like, yes, I'm treasure. And it's like, treasure doesn't usually talk. And it's like, yeah, oh, no, right. no, that's I'm, 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 I'm just talking treasure. Come, come closer so I can talk more. And I love that, but I love to think, well, if, if you had a modern take on, what would it hide itself as now? And... And, and you know, what I did was I, you know, did pumpkins and candles and they were all these sort of autumn-based, a pile of leaves as a mimic. Because if you think about it, people love to jump into piles of leaves. More so, they're very untrusting of treasure sitting in a treasure chest out in a dungeon. But a pile of leaves out in the open, you know someone's going to run towards that. Well, and then I you mean, just imagine that. <laughs> that's accurate. Mimics are probably one of the main reasons I have trust issues these days. One of the main reasons most gamers probably have trust issues, honestly. Pretty much, I I like the old thing of um, everyone's at the tavern and they're laughing and joking and one tells a joke and they laugh, their friends laugh, the table laughed, we stabbed the table. (laughs) But the other thing is I've played a lot of games where I've been with creative people themselves who've twisted it on top. So I once played a game where there was a mimic that was the bar. Like, the, the tavern that you were at, the bar, was a mimic. <laughs> and it had been trained to not eat people, but swallow the money. And so, instead of the barman having to uh, follow people's tabs and things, you just put your money on, and the mimic would swallow the money, regurgitate it later, and they just fed it with fresh meat so it wouldn't eat anyone. So, so it was essentially a large-sized piggy bank. Mm-hmm. And you okay. weren't going to try and rob that. You definitely weren't going to try and rob that. Like, like, even though they kept it well fed, it was trained to defend itself as well. So yeah, definitely, definitely. The the games I play inspire me. I especially love goblins. Like, goblins play a big part of my art because I love their mischievous nature. I love the chaos that surrounds them because, like, a lot of other creatures are driven by hunger or power or revenge and you have all that where goblins just seem to be driven by the need to cause chaos (laughs) 
So yeah. I I run it. I run a and d game where the goblins basically were not evil. They were just mischievous. And if you guided them in the right way, yes, they'd be a pain in the bum, but they'd actually be a helpful pain in the bum. So are you a DM then in that D&D campaign? Or? Well, that was a long time ago. I haven't DM'd for about two years. I was starting a game. It wasn't actually D&D. I... Um, when I uh, DM now, I actually um, use a core rulebook uh, from. It's called uh, Savage Worlds, and it's. It, I always forget the actual game that they're famous for. Funnily enough, because I've only ever played the core rules with my own sort of skinning on top of you. Like I make, I make a world. So the first one I ever run is I actually did Borderlands, the computer game, as a role-play game. And the great fun about that is it meant everyone was rewarded for being as silly as possible because Borderlands, the game, is obviously extremely silly. But not only was there a great place to write and create a, a new world, I didn't set it on Pandora that Borderlands is set on. I actually created a whole new world, all new characters, introduced a few of the old ones just to keep uh, my players happy. But then just let them do what they wanted within the boundaries. But they could be as silly and as strange as they wanted. And then the other thing on top of that is I got to design all the monsters and the bad guys. So I used it as a way to practice drawing in a more conceptual style. So rather than trying to create a polished image, I was the only person creating this game. So I had to do it on mass so there was no oh let's do this really nice polished image it was like no i need to describe this monster quick so would draw three or four creatures just to be like right this is this is this and and then if they'd level up and i was like right i need a new monster i'd have to go away and draw another one so it's a lot of energy to go into it because i was enjoying it so much it was it was really easy to sort of get into and do so about how long have you been a digital artist Oh, that, that's an interesting one, because I, when I went to uni and college, I was still uh, working mostly pencil and pen. I would colour things on the computer, but was still drawing in uh, um, traditional manners and then scanning it in. It was more after um, uni that I kind of got, I'd, I'd got a graphics tablet and I was sort of practising with it, but wasn't putting much into it. And then I just realized all the things I wanted to do. So uh, joining things like uh, Redbubble to do print-on-demand artwork, uh, getting prints made for conventions, because I did conventions for a little while. Um, it was just so slow to try and draw it and, and get it right and then put it into a computer and edit it. So I sort of made the decision, well, I'll carry on doing traditional stuff, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing digital but the more I started to learn about the digital process, the more I realized, well, actually, I, I like this better. This this is better for a lot of different reasons. So while I still have a sketchbook and draw traditionally, it, that's more now like the hobby side of it. If I want to be go out, I'll have a coffee and draw. But then after uni, I realized that the, a lot of the things I wanted to do were fully digital. Like you had to be producing digital work. You could do traditional, but the price on that compared to having a copied print for a convention, very different for a startup uh, artist. 
so yeah it was it was sort of a decision kind of driven partially by the market but then afterwards finding well actually this is this is something i really enjoy i really should um get into this more and then just built on that as the years have gone on so which would you prefer more doing digital or traditional I I really do prefer my digital art now, but I think it's because it's it it's the sort of nature where if if I'm feeling up to drawing, my first instinct is to go onto my computer, and the tools that I've started to use just feel right to me. Now, pencil and paper are great, and I love messing with watercolors and just. I've got watercolor pencils and paints, and I just love to play. But it's it's a hobby. It's something I do for the fun when it comes to traditional, just like messing with it, and I don't think about it as much. So while it's fun, and I do enjoy it, the digital one, I get this sort of sense of pride, especially that after uh, about 10 years of practice, I, I actually look at my own digital artwork, and, I, you know, you have that, that, that sort of... The almost cliche, but it's very true. Artists look at their own work and they're like, "Oh, I hate this. I don't like this. Like, I, I, no, no, I should never have drawn this." And they move that on is, to the next work. That's, that's actually very true with most things, even with writing. Oh, yeah. you uh, writer, at... it's it's yeah, it's a creative thing. You just you see your own work, and and even like um, audio things. Uh, the amount of times people listen to themselves and like, oh my god, I th- why why didn't people tell me I sound like that? Oh god, oh no. When when actual. <laughs> so yeah, we definitely as creatives, and a lot of people do that. They they sort of have a lower opinion. After ten years, I I can look at my work and go, you know what? I still like this. I can see the things I can improve on, but I never go, that's bad. I always think of it, I can improve that. That's something I can do better. I can go off and look at tutorials, or I can go and just practice that thing. Um, like maybe it's something to do with anatomy, or it's it's uh, perspective or something else. I can just go and practice those things and get better at them. And I know I can because I can look at my old artwork and, and it, you know, Facebook's great for this. Like, there's so many problems with Facebook, but it'll, every now and again pop up a memory and it's like, 10 years ago you posted this and I'll be looking going, oh my God, yeah, I drew that. That's awful. <laughs> that's, that's, I thought that was brilliant at the time, but no, I, I could do that better now. That's interesting to say that. Do you see that as kind of looking like a past version of yourself? It's it's kind of more like looking back at, well, looking back at photo, photographs of a, a journey. You kind of go, oh, my God, I, you know, th- this long ago, I was I was there, but now I'm, I'm here. It's it's a point. So I don't see it as a different person. I see it as a, a less practiced and less educated point of view. And then, you know, I think of it as like, oh, it's been 10 years and people see that they go oh, 10 years ago you did this and 10 years you've now you're now doing this and that's so different but 10 years is a long time and in that i've learned and grown and and found better ways of working uh, and especially now that i've got a lot of client driven work and some of them need it quickly so i've had to learn techniques that help me speed up the way i produce artwork um and, and because of that digital art 
right? Yeah, digital digital is p- part of that. It's part of going well. Um, I mean, my tutor had one of the best stories for digital art, and it was what started to push me in that direction. Um, he'd been a paid freelance artist, and he still did work on the side as well as being a tutor. And basically, what happened is he he he'd always been anti-digital. His his wife was a graphic designer, and she was all like, "You should learn. It's it's the way the world's going." He's like, "No, no, everyone will always want traditional." And he had to paint this surrealist landscape for a magazine. And they loved it. They were gushing about it that he said. They were like, oh, it was great. We love it. But then they went, but we need you to change this tree to purple. (laughs) And this was a massive canvas painting that had been reduced to a two-page spread, he said. And he'd have to paint that all again. And he he suddenly went to his wife and went, what do I do? And she was like, you don't have to paint it all again. Just paint the tree and I'll show you how to edit it on. And then... So he did, he paints this purple tree and then his wife goes through the process of editing this tree into the picture. They send it off and they're like, that's fantastic, it's wonderful, thank you so much. And he's just like, oh my God, this is a really important tool. And if he didn't have that access, he would have had to completely repaint that picture again. And and that's the way, it's not just like from traditional to digital. Uh, there was a golden age of illustration in the, I want to say, 50s. My my dates are terrible. That's the like, numbers I'm awful with. Like, art, yes. Words, numbers, no. <laughs> um, I don't remember them. But in the 50s, there was this, like, golden age of illustration where printers couldn't do photography. So artists were called in to illustrate everything, adverts and 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 just general sort of like articles that needed a picture to go with it but then printers started to evolve and get better to the point that they could print photographs so suddenly illustrators were having this boom in the industry and then it just vanished when when printing was cheaper and photographs were faster so again that was the first sign of well we need to now get on board with this we need to match up with this or we're going to be completely out of work now digital art wouldn't come for a while still and you know photo manipulation was in its early days but i mean that's our history for you something happens in the industry and it changes everything you can go back to the time where people would spend seven years painting a portrait and then someone went, I've, invoted, I've invented the camera and we can now take pictures near enough instantly. And all these painters were like, I'll never catch on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and we barely even have photography anymore as it is. I'm seeing all these digital photo landscapes now that you could just buy and upload pictures from your phone. Yeah, and, and again, like the medium, the medium is changing, so... Cameras themselves were once a separate item, and now, yes, they're your phone. And some of those phone cameras are are much better than any camera I owned when I had a digital camera. And then on top of that, you have, like, the introduction of things like um, Twitch and TikTok and the development of YouTube, where still image isn't like as a uh, appreciated like it's it's you know people would laugh at funny memes where now they want to watch a funny video so again the industry changes again it just it, a constantly evolu- uh, evolving sort of creature itself and i think that's creativity and everything it's constantly changing and moving in different directions and while you still have 
you know you're always going to have traditional artists and i was i said i've been talking about art all day me and a friend were having um a discussion about this and i think she was a little bit scared that you know her being a traditional artist at some point digital would completely take over and i said we've been doing traditional art since we were like in caves we have created physical things and people have always liked physical things better right so it's like so traditional art's not going to go anywhere there'll always be a love and a passion for it it's just that there will always be an evolution where something new comes along and because i mean at the minute everyone calls it digital art but we was I, I even said to her at some point digital art will become part of traditional art and there'll be the next evolution i i jokingly said it'll be you plug something into your brain and you just think an image and it appears on the computer it's like why painstakingly draw it when you can just think it <laughs> you know well like, like everyone says history always repeats itself so it doesn't matter how far advanced in technology we go we're eventually going to go back to the point where we need traditional art again yeah and uh, uh, there's a lot of i mean uh, the last few years um um the traditional styles of portraiture came back so there was lots of sort of a big a big wave towards photorealistic portraits. Well, the only thing that really changed was they wanted the um, the actual paintings to be of more real people or real moments. So where a, a rich lord or a, a king or something would hire an artist to, to paint them, now it was more artists going out and going i i want to paint you your story's incredible you know you're you're a nurse and you've you've been on the front line of covid or you're a you're a a troop who's been uh, out in 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 action in you know the middle east or something you get all of these um people who've got real stories and again that's portraiture has you know evolved where a long time ago was here's an image of the person so you know who it is or it was a status symbol look how rich i am i've had a painting done of me <laughs> um now the portrait's taken on that actual well what what does it mean what does it tell you about the person and you know portraits have evolved in a in a way like everyone uh laughed at tracy emmons bed like um people like how is a, a bed a piece of art and how more how more importantly is it a, a piece of portrait art but that bed told you more about her than a photograph would tell you a photograph just shows you who the person is it doesn't tell you where her bed dragged into a gallery she'd been suffering depression and had lived in that bed for months it was her nest it was everything was around food communication um ideas things were just thrown and scrawled about it and so that told more of a story as a portrait. So, you know, that's that's but that's installation art and didn't have to draw anything to do that. So installation art was big at that time. Again, like modern art in general, it's that sort of, oh, this is modern art. But at some point that modern art becomes classic art right. or traditional art. It, and that's the beast that it is that evolves. It's something new comes along and it's amazing, but then it will become mainstream and then it becomes history. Like most things, really. <laughs> if you, you can change, change one thing about your career, what would it be? <laughs> well, I'm, I've, I, I, you know, everyone sort of has little regrets. I don't. I look back and I don't really tend to have regrets, um, and want to change things because um, 
when I was younger, I, I went through a point where everybody I respected said, being an artist is really hard. Do you think you can do it? And I had so little confidence in myself. I was like, probably not. And I stopped being an artist for four years. And I mean, I wasn't even really drawing my own work. I'd doodle every now and again. But when I was unhappy, I'd start to draw again. And eventually, after four years, a friend was like, you love art. Why don't you go and do something about it? So I went to a night class. The, the art tutor was like, Ian, you're actually really good at this. And, you know, you still got a life. Why don't you go and you know, try college. So I tried to join the foundation, but didn't have enough. But there was a course called the Preparation for Specialist Skills, where I had to uh, learn, um, like, uh, my first parts of art history, like proper art history, rather than just, this is Van Gogh, this is Picasso, draw like them, well done. It was the actual history of it, where it came from, how it led to one thing, and I got really excited about that. Eventually, foundation and uni, now, if I go back in time and say, well, what if I at that point had confidence and I said, you know what? No, I want to be an artist. The massive changes is that the uni I came to to in the end, Cheltenham, Gloucester Uni. Basically, it didn't exist as an illustration course. So if I'd gone then to do art, I would not have come to Gloucester or Cheltenham. I would have been somewhere else. And then I would question, well, would I have met the people who have helped me now? Because I met them because I came here. So I could say, changing that to see what happened, to see if I was further along in my career, or would I actually be further behind? Because, yes, I started art earlier, but I didn't meet the people I should have met or did meet that helped me get to where I am. Um, I think, so... So really, I don't, I don't think I'd want to change anything like that. Maybe the money I spent on conventions, <laughs> that that might be one thing. Like I, I did conventions for a few years, tried to see if I could do it, and at the end of it all, after paying out hundreds of pounds for prints and and paying for tables, made loads of friends, met loads of people, have some fantastic memories. Um, a great one being, I, I always forget the actor's name, but the actor who played Gimli was at one of the conventions I went to. And he went up to every table to wish them luck on the day and stopped at my table because the person helping me had a mask on because they had a cold and they didn't want to give people the cold. And suddenly you've got this guy who everyone knows is Gimli, looks at my friend and goes, What's the matter? Don't you want to breathe the same air as us? <laughs> and they were. And I, I looked at them, and they looked a little bit starstruck, and I just had to turn to them and go, they're not very well, so they didn't want to give everyone... And he was like, oh, I completely understand. Told us this lovely anecdote, and then he was like, anyway, I've got to get to my table, so good luck, have a great show, and walked off. It's like, I wouldn't have that if I hadn't tried the conventions, but maybe I'd be a little better off money-wise. <laughs> the starving poor artist is real. Um... Did you cosplay at any of these cons, or was that not really a thing? I'd, I'd never, I never really cosplayed at any of the big ones, but then the last ever one I went to, I kind of had a moment of, well, this is the last one, and I don't know if I'll get to a convention again soon. What ironically was actually the year before COVID. So I was like, you know what, I might go to a convention, but as a as a customer, and then lockdown happened. So I was like, maybe I won't then. <laughs> Um, so the last one, I went as a mixture of 
Keith Ledger's Joker and the cartoon Joker, where I had a top a top hat and t- tails, so it was very, very sort of ballroom dancing. But the the face makeup was more towards Heath Ledger. Um, what was fun? It was just it was just fun to be the Joker for a, for a day because the villains have more fun. I don't care what they say. The villain is having way more fun than the good guy. I don't know about that. that. I, I can never be. be a- the bad, bad guy, guy in any video game I choose. <laughs> I think the choices is hard for me for that particular reason. I think there are definitely certain games I'd agree. There are certain games where I'm like, no, I c- oh, Fable. Fable was a good one. I really struggled to be a bad guy in Fable. <laughs> but Mass, a- Mass Effect. Mass Effect. Now, being a bad guy in Mass Effect was actually quite fun. <laughs> Until, Until you're at the end, and you kind of screw yourself over. A little bit at the end, but that's what happens to bad guys. You do bad things, it comes back to bite you <laughs> in computer games. But no, there was the you know it's it's kind of um, what was it? There was a movie uh, with um, Brendan Fraser in Dudley Do Right, and one of the lines at the end is the bad guy loses, and he goes. Oh well, the bad. I did had to lose in the end. I'm the bad guy. I had fun up until the end. It always goes wrong at the end. <laughs> and that yeah tends to be the life of most bad guys anyway. So, but yeah, I think I think I like to play the bad guy. It might be from a DM's perspective because you're not your every character is a DM, but the bad guy is what's driving the plot and the story. So you have to really get into it. The funny thing is, supposedly, in real life, I'm really nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a DM is real endgame for any D&D campaign. You have to survive him or her throughout the whole thing, so... Mm. It is, and it's an interesting... It is a very interesting... And I imagine a lot of game developers, whatever the game you're creating, from board game to computer and everything in between, you want to create a game that's engaging fun but you need to make it hard otherwise it's boring and that that that's difficult and being a dm that is really hard you know i've i've created like encounters where my players had to you know fight something and i'm going oh god they're losing they're actually losing they they could they could fail at this point this could be the end and, you know, but at the same time, I don't want to be, well, I'll just fudge some rolls so they survive. <laughs> it's like, no, no, I, I, I want this to feel. But then when they survive, the, the feeling of success and actually making it through, you see that they've enjoyed it. And it's such a hard balance to strive, like, because it's like you want it to be fun. But you also want it to be a challenge because that if you go far too far one way or the other, like if it's all challenge and no fun, your players are going to get fed up. And all fun sounds great, but if by the end of it, every time you walk into a, a, an encounter and you just bonk something on the head and it's like, yeah, you beat it, next thing, that's just going to get you know very dull and repetitive. Right. So. So yeah. So being able to be sinister and have evil characters and do all sorts of fun things um, is part of that. Like, And that's where I don't the know. goblin artwork comes from, right? That's yeah. part of you. It's, the goblins are definitely that little sort of dark part of me that, um, you know, 
wants to be mischievous and probably <laughs> wants to pull pranks, but won't. <laughs> I mean, if, 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 I, if there was a barrier I could get rid of, that would probably come out. The little goblins I create would come to life through mischievous pranks. Um, so, because I've, I've recently just got into TikTok and I'm trying different things to see what's fun. So I do, like, I have a cat, so I've got a bit of cat content on there because cats are always fun. My cat is currently fast asleep on my feet, keeping them warm. <laughs> um, I do a lot of art ones, so obviously promote my art, but just generally having fun with art. But I then created a goblin character um, and was like, right, I get to create this character and be mischievous. And in the end, those are the things that have got more popular. And I think it's because... The art ones are seen and people like them and, and there was wonderful comments and the cat ones are enjoyed because cats. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> loves cats. cats. Yeah, yeah, like there's dog people and cat people and then there's people who like both and you know, you're going to attract some in. But the goblin I'm just having fun with and I think because of that they do get a lot of views and uh, comments and likes and shares and things like that. What's What's great as well. And I think that allows me to let that mischievous and evil side out as well, so... <laughs> for and, and... for Go on. Any, any upcoming artists, artists what, what advice, advice would, would you, you give them to help them get started? So, the main one, and I swear every new artist hates hearing this because it, it gets drilled in by everyone, is always practice. Like... Uh, a bodybuilder gets strong through lifting weights. They don't just instantly get strong. Runners have to run every day. And it's they're all hard. There's none one easier than the other. They all work different things. If you're drawing every day, you're on the right track. So that's always the first big piece of advice. But everyone tells you that. And even when I was young and starting up, like, just practice. And I was like, no, I want to be good now. How do I be good now? <laughs> I don't, I don't think, think there's no. any cheat codes for that. that, or or anything there is, like that. No, no, I did try it up, down, left, right, and it did not work. <laughs> <laughs> so practice them. But it doesn't mean going out and doing life drawings. It doesn't mean... Um, um, trying to create original characters. It, some days, it literally could just be tracing. Like, I was really struggling with proportions at one point. Like, really, I was trying to follow the tutorials and it wasn't working. And there was just something I needed. So what I'd done is I just grabbed a load of uh, photos of people. Like, from Google, from, uh, my own photo archives, anything. And put them into Photoshop and traced over the top of them. And then... After that, I then broke them down into their shapes. So, you know, you often see the, the comic book art where it's the sort of circles where the joints are and lines for the arms and all that. And broke it down and it created a muscle memory. So I started to develop, well, this is where I should be drawing a joint. This is how to foreshorten. And so I, I completely admit I started by tracing and that helped me get to grips with how my arm should be moving, how how my hands should be held, how how to foreshorten the line properly, because they're all things you've got to learn. And then from that, started to draw more from life. And now, when I say draw from life, I mean, like, photography. So, you know, like, a photo of anything. It doesn't have to be a person, even. It can be a tree. 
Right. And that's the next that's the next bit of advice. If you want to be a comic book artist, then you know, learn to draw people. Now that sounds like a strange thing to say because it's like, well, of course I'm going to learn to draw people, but le- learn to draw real people first. Only because if you try to stylize something, then there's always going to look something off about it. Like, it, first, you've got to really get to grips with how a weight and balance and how muscles look and things like that before you can sort of really get to grips with then stylizing it and, and moving on to the next point. Um, and, like, one thing I often drew was my hand because one of my art tutors said it best. Someone was like, on board and I've got nothing to draw. And he was like, you have two hands, right? They were like, yeah. It's like, well, one hand can draw. Look at the other hand and draw that. Because it's one of the most complicated things to draw. Hands and feet. Are, oh, like, I, I could never, never draw, draw hands, hands, no matter how hard I tried. But you, you bend your fingers and have a look. You've got so many points of articulation. And every time you move something, your hand changes shape. It is not an easy thing to draw. They are very difficult. But that's why they're also great to draw. Because it's, it's a challenge trying to work all that out. So get into grips with that. But if you're going to be someone who doesn't, who wants to draw backgrounds, then draw landscapes, look at trees. Uh, the more things you experience and the more you draw, the more you can create from scratch. So a great example is in university, I fell in love with the New Zealand bird, the kiwi, little flightless, pointless animal. Like it, it is a native bird. It's flightless and they just scurry about and, and annoy New Zealanders to no end, but they are the national bear. <laughs> and and, and uh, sorry, sorry? You, you mentioned, mentioned you do, do Twitch, Twitch emotes, emotes as, as well, well, right? Yes, this is it's it's something new. I've I've really just started this, so it's because I'm quite new to Twitch. I'm just getting into um, how the emotes work, and I've I've done a set for. A client a long while ago and then was more focused on branding artwork and commission artwork and then recently i've had a few people contact me who are clients who are because of they're now moving into twitch and other uh, realms where they need them they're starting to ask oh can you do them and i'm like well well yeah i can so i'm getting back into doing that again about, about how, how long, long would, would you say, say a particular piece will take you to work, work on, on? <laughs> oh, the the most annoying answer ever. How long's a piece of string? <laughs> so, um, so when it comes to a Twitch emote, they're they're much smaller, and you've got to capture a lot of of sort of a, you know, like usually a facial feature within big marks, so they can be seen in that small scale. Right. right. So that doesn't take as long as 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 say a uh, like a commission piece that might be for printing uh, even like a5 size a, a smaller size because there's less lines and you can't put as much detail in because the minute it shrinks down that detail just becomes a smudge so it's limited color palettes um so that's the hard part it's you draw it and then you have to shrink it and go can I, can my brain understand what that image still is and sometimes it works, sometimes you'll shrink it down, you're like, yeah, that's a smiling little happy face. Other times you'll shrink it and go, nope, that is now a smudge. <laughs> so the, the, that's the, the harder part of the process, where 
because of the nature of Twitch, especially, you you want the the standard set. You want happy, excited, and you want all these faces that everyone else has in your style, whatever that might be. Um, I can't say much. I have a client asking me um, um, for something now, and it took me 15 minutes to do, I think it was three sketches of ideas. He picked one, and then the next day I spent 20 minutes creating a finished item. And that, you know, so less than an hour to just create one. And when I shrank it down, I was like, yeah, this works. And, and they were happy with it. But now the hard part is taking that image and making it work with different faces and different expressions. And maybe even adding words in. Because that's obviously another big thing. Having, you know, the various different uh, text pieces you have with the character. Because then you have to shrink the character down. It's like, well, now he's getting smaller on an image that's about to get even smaller. <laughs> like, do, does everyone have mi mi microscopes anymore? Because you may need to zoom in on this one. <laughs> um, so that's where the process then starts to take time, making sure that it's still a visible image, even at the smaller sizes. Um, but, I mean, structure and process is a big thing as well that you learn as you go along. You You do pick up things where it's like right if i do this and if i make this line this size then it should be visible and if i make sure to have very contrasting colors so color theory is a big one like like knowing which colors to really use to sort of make something bounce off a page um is also another important one um and i'm still learning color theory color theory still gets me at times where i'm like this is just not clicking and i go off and you know suddenly i'm reading articles about here's how to use red properly and you're like i'm a grown adult i'm learning about rainbows <laughs> Can we color, color theory, theory a little, little bit, bit. to the people so, that may not know what's well color theory is 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 sort of the there's a few basics so I mean, I always laugh when people say, oh, red and green shouldn't be seen. I was like, that's just because it rhymes. Because red <laughs> and green are always seen at Christmas time because they're contrasting colors. And the it's the easiest thing to work out. You've got your primary colors. So this is our primary rather than science primary. So blue, yellow, and red. And obviously, if you mix two of them together, you get the secondary colors. So, you know, red and blue, purple, and etc. Right. Your contrasting colors are the two mixed colors with the color that isn't mixed so you have purple that's red and blue it will bounce off of yellow colors and you often see that if you you uh, uh computer games used to do this a lot that like bad guys often came in yellows and purples and it's because yeah, yeah. those colors contrast so they bounce <laughs> and then that all of them are like that so that's why green and red are opposing colors because Green is made up of yellow and blue. So that's that's the basic. That's the very, very basic. Because then it's how you use them that will make uh, something drop into the background or pop to the front. And then there's like theories of only using a small colour palette because the more colours you throw in, there's just, you know, like an, a, a sensory overload. So the limited palettes can really help to make things easier to quickly visualise and... and pull in that's why i mean modern printers do really nice with with colors but if you even go out on the street and just look at some advertising posters you often see that 
there is a limited color range. Now, it's still a color range, so you might have a variety of yellows and a variety of purples, but they'll be the only two colors. And um, um, a great example in movies at the moment is there's the joke going around with the whole every movie poster looks like that blue and orange together. Well, again, contrasting colors. And they'll have the fade from orange to blue, and it, it, it just has this wonderful effect to it. But again, it's color theory. Those are... Often the colder colours are, are are usually suggested of the good guys, where the, the hotter colours are the action and the danger. <laughs> so yeah, if you if you go look at like I think most Marvel Marvel movie posters use it, Star Wars uses it, um, and there's a few others that you just go and have a look and you'll you'll see. And it's again that's just a basic colour theory, but it's also a pattern in the media that those posters get noticed so more and more people are making those posters their movie posters look like that to draw more and more people in so yeah but like i say i i have to learn more about color theory because even i i'll have moments where i'm staring at something like this is not working (laughs) control a select everything and delete let's start again So, so we're, we're about at, at the end, end of the run for the, for the first, first episode. episode. Where, where can, can anyone reach you for a commission or just, just to hire you in general as an artist? Well, I, I, I'm, as I say, I am everywhere on social media. Um, the best place um, to find me, my everywhere, is I have a, a Beacons, what's uh, beacons.ai, and it's like like Linktree or any of them. It's just all my links in one place. So if you search for Beacons, and then it's Ian underscore A underscore Blakeman, and you should find my Beacons through that. Otherwise, usually if you type in Ian A Blakeman illustrations, my Facebook page will pop up. And my Facebook one is the easiest one to jump on because uh, you you don't even have to follow to send me a message on that. And you can message me about commissions or you can just come look at the art. I honestly, if someone comes along and goes, hey, nice art, it makes me happy. Like it's it's a joy that someone has stopped to say something nice. And (laughs) I've always said if I didn't, if you didn't have to be paid and there was no such thing as bills, you just got to do what you like. I'd absolutely love to just do art just to make people happy because that is a real driving force if someone goes i really love this it makes me want to make more art what's What's one one of the the biggest biggest problems you you have have right now being an an indie indie artist it's it's paying the bills it is always and has always been for many people so i have a day job and my schedule is very different when i am in work compared to 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 on my nice seven days off from my day job. <laughs> so it's it's that balance. And I don't mean just between doing the day job and um, doing the freelance work. It's having a social life as well, because that's just as important. You know, your health, you are the center of, of your business. If you're unhealthy, your business is going to be unhealthy. But Matt, you're, everyone's like, oh, it's like a seesaw getting it perfectly balanced. No, it's it's more like someone's took one of those spinning things from a park and that is balanced on a seesaw. And there's spinning <laughs> and there's seesawing and you're trying not to fall off. Well, well it's the hardest. At least, at least with, with COVID, COVID going, going on right, on right, right now, now, you can't, can't really, really have too much social, social life. life. Uh, that is true. Um, I've moved very much onto Discord, what's helped. But at the same time, I, I, we're starting to 
get out and do things again. I, I had loads of fun a couple of weeks ago when I went to see live stand-up comedy and I was surrounded by people and was like, ah, oh, people, but oh my God, live comedy. <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was nice to be out and to, you know, hear a joke and then hear a room explode into laughter. I was just like, oh, this is why I remember enjoying coming out. Because, <laughs> yeah, we all enjoy the same thing. So... Yeah, socialist is still a weird thing at the moment, but I definitely have missed it, and I'm definitely, I'm definitely enjoying it as I get back into it. And with, and with that, that, we are actually, actually about, about out of time. time. Is, is there, there anything, anything you want to say before closing, closing out, out the, show? the show? So you said for artists, honestly, for just for artists, definitely practice, but just love what you're doing, like you have to bend and break sometimes for things, but as long as you're loving what you're doing, then you're on the right track. And, then and then just for anyone anyway. else, sorry. And then, and then that goes through for, for basically, basically anything. Really. Yeah. Yeah. If you love what you're doing, you're going to get better and you'll, you'll do it with more passion. And the better you get, the more passion you'll have. And then for anyone else, um, I love to, I, I think I'll leave with like a Picasso quote because I do this as, as a job, but if you go, oh, I can't draw anything but stick figures. Um, Pablo Picasso once quoted that he spent four years learning how to paint like the Renaissance artist and then the rest of his life trying to paint like a child. Because if you look at a child painting, they're just having fun and enjoying themselves. So I always say, have fun, enjoy yourself. Don't worry <laughs> if it doesn't look like it's meant to. As long as you've enjoyed it, then it's perfect. It's perfect as it is. Alrighty, well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you too, it's been great. Thank you, and you have a good night, man. You too, you too.